I want to contribute too much. I want to act out what I'm playing too much. I, I, uh, I, I don't fit in all the time in certain situations because uh, I can't help myself. You know, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta speak up. You know, I gotta, I gotta do something. So it, 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 it's hurt me a little bit, uh, but not enough to say I regret it because that led me to other things because that's what certain people wanted. Warning, this episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Guru Saying Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Harry Kim. Harry is a legend in the world of commercial horn sections. As a former member of the Phoenix Horns and the founder of the Vine Street Horns, Harry has played and toured with some of the top names in pop music. Harry has played the sold-out arenas with Phil Collins and French megastar Johnny Halliday and has the distinction of playing with two of the most iconic horn bands of all time, Chicago and Tower of Power. Harry's career is so extensive that this hang had to be broken down into two full episodes. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. All right, welcome to this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast, and I am joined by a legend in the music business, Mr. Harry Kim. Uh, no, that doesn't mean old. That, that just means that you, you've done a lot of stuff, my friend, lots of stuff. So, Harry, it is so good to have you uh, on this podcast, and uh, I look forward to, to getting to know you and letting everybody else get to know you a little bit better, too. Well, thank you, Jose. Thank you for inviting me to your uh, prestigious podcast ah prestigious man that's a that's that's a five dollar word if i've ever heard one so uh i've never had anybody call this podcast prestigious Uh, well it sounds prestigious (laughs) it's marketing my friend it's marketing it's all all about the branding you know Um, (laughs) it's good it's good it sounds good yeah well you know that the thing is like you know uh, the word guru kind of has this this uh sometimes it has this mystical connotation but basically it's it's just means somebody who's got experience, somebody who's been there, done that, and is willing and able to share and mentor the next uh, generation to come forward. And that's what, uh, you know, I try to do in terms of, of all the guests that I have here, you know, get people who have that real world experience and share it with people who, you know, who love trumpet and, and want to get a deeper look into the insight of, of what it takes to be uh, a high level professional player, just uh, like yourself. So, um, yeah, you are definitely a guru, my friend. You are definitely I'll, good. I'll try to guru myself <laughs> through this hour and a half. All right, yeah. that sounds good to me. All right, so let's just let's kind of start. Uh, I guess kind of in the middle of of things, uh, instead of starting at the beginning. Um, you have uh, you've worked with so many great people over years, but you've had this uh, really strong connection with Phil Collins. Uh, you know, over over this uh, kind of period of, of your career, uh, you know, uh, working with him on uh, you know, lots of the the his solo stuff, uh, the the Phil Collins big band, uh, and uh, you know, you, because of that, you're on a stage that most players don't get to be on. That kind of a huge stage. Um, do you? How, how do you manage that? How do you navigate that world of, of being 
in this upper echelon of uh, touring musicians, uh, you know, as as the trumpet guy? How do I handle it? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just it's just another day at the office. That's how I feel about it. Okay. Um, you know, they I think they interviewed might have been LeBron James once and uh, or one of the all-star basketball players and they asked him what it felt like to to be a professional basketball player and all that and he he simply said uh, you know he he just kind of got you know got in there nice and easy but the thing was he always felt like he belonged there right. you know and when i look at look back to everything i did you know like in the beginning i had goals and dreams and when I started reaching them one by one, I had thought about it so much and envisioned it so much that I just felt like I belong. You know, nothing was a was a shock, and nothing was uh, I wasn't overly elated about it or anything. Uh, like some people I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, when when. Uh, when I hired Dan for the uh, 1994 tour with Phil Collins, he really went nuts. He, uh, I guess it's a milestone, but I didn't consider it a milestone. You know, I just, uh, I, first of all, the, the job uh, fell in my lap. I didn't, uh, I've never been good at uh, self-promoting or anything like that. Everything that happened in my career just kind of fell in my lap. And, uh, I, in 1985, I knew the guys in the Phoenix Horns. The Phoenix Horns are the original horn section of Earth, Wind, and Fire. And as the story goes, uh, Phil Collins fell in love with the Phoenix Horns, and he would go to all the shows and and just hang out with the Phoenix Horns. And uh, so he promised uh, if he ever went solo, he would use them. And sure enough, he did. I think it was 78, 79. He went solo. He left, uh, you know, apart from Genesis. And he called upon the Phoenix Horns. And uh, and they toured with him. In 1985, They uh, something happened. I'm not really sure what happened. But they had to find another trumpet player to fill in for uh, just a amazingly talented uh, trumpet player named Michael Harris, who, uh, if anybody knows him, he's just a natural player, amazing abilities to play uh, around the horn. But I inherited his position, and along with that came Phil Collins and other things that the Phoenix Horns did between 1985 and 1989 when uh, I recorded... uh, I was part of the recording of But Seriously. That was my first uh, participation with Phil Collins. And um, I i don't know if I should admit this in public, but I've never been much of a, a listener of music and never kept up with pop music and stuff like that. And I had heard of Phil Collins, but I didn't really know anything about him or his music. So when I went and recorded for him, I remember feeling I wasn't rattled or anything like that. We okay. just went in to do a job, mm-hmm. and uh, we knocked that out, knocked it out, and uh, it turned out to be a multi-platinum 
award-winning uh, CD. And uh, I guess I was happy, but, you know, I remember while we were recording it, it seemed like a great album. Uh, everything we were doing was spectacular. And uh, and then he uh, then he toured it in 1990, and we did a world tour. And then uh, several years went by, and uh, well, actually a couple of years went by. 1992, he was touring again with uh, Genesis. And by then, I believe the sax player, which, well, the Phoenix Horns was a co-op horn section. Okay. But the uh, sax player uh, tragically died. And uh, I think Phil kind of thought, well, he's going to try something new. And in 1992, when he came to L.A. Uh, to play with Genesis, I remember he played at, I think it was Dodger Stadium. And he gave me a call and said that he was thinking of trying a different horn section, that if I have any recordings or anything, uh, or if I could put a horn section together for him, uh, it would be great. And uh, But I already had a horn section. Uh, I put together the Vine Street horns uh, with Dan Fernero and uh, Arturo Velasco and uh, Gene Burkert on saxophone. And we had started touring already, and we did several CDs with as as the Vine Street Horns, which, by the way, Dan uh, came up with that name. We were trying to figure out a name for the for the for the horn section, and it seemed like we did a lot of rehearsing on Vine Street across the street from the Union. So he said, "What about the Vine Street Horns?" And we said, "Oh, that sounds really great." So. Um, by the time Phil called, we had several recordings uh, in CD credits and stuff like that. And I went to meet him. He, he, he sent uh, my wife and I uh, invitations to Dodger Stadium. And uh, after the show, we went backstage to see him and, and uh, told him all about him. I gave him a cassette tape of cuts that, that the Wine Street Horns had played on, uh, some uh, kind of high-profile stuff, too. Um, and so he called me, and it was really funny because when I was backstage, I met all the people that I met uh, during the 1990 tour, you know, all the crew, right. the wardrobe people, everybody. And they all talked to me like they knew I was going to tour with them uh, in 1994. So that that was like, uh, they came from out of nowhere. And I said, well, these people are assuming I'm doing this tour and Phil hasn't asked me yet. But uh, but it's, it turned out, yeah, uh, he, I think he did a movie after his tour with Genesis or, or he he tour, he played drums with Eric Clapton. So it, it took a while uh, between 1990 and then he toured in 19, 1994. And, and that was really exciting because I came in, uh, you know, bringing my guys mm -hmm. and uh, and we killed it. You know, we went in there and, and killed it. And um and the rest is history, you know, just we did one tour after another, after another, and uh, and CDs, and and then uh, one day he, he used to have this shtick in, in the, during the 1994 um, uh, tour, and, and his shticks evolve slowly, you know, during the introductions, you know, the introductions start out a certain way, and by the, you know, the 
took a half hour because <laughs> he just improvised and stuff. So the shtick on that particular t- uh, tour, uh, the piano player kind of played a cocktail lounge swing version of Invisible Touch, which was a big um, Genesis hit. And uh, and he'd go on to introduce everybody. And then one day he asked me if I could add horns to that. So I did a kind of swingy version of da 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 you know. And, and then he, um, it wasn't until 1996 that he said, what do you say we put a big, big band together? And uh, I said, okay, what are you thinking about? And basically what he wanted to do was play, he wanted to play big band drums out of a la Buddy Rich. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to get a bunch of stock arrangements of, um, you know, Nestico charts and Buddy Rich charts and whatnot. And, uh, you know, I, I said, you, you can't do that. If you're going to go out and play big band stuff, you're going to have to have originals. Otherwise, you know, keep it as a rehearsal band in your living room. And uh, so we threw some ideas back and forth and uh, came up with a list of potential tunes. And and we just went back and forth, back and forth. And then he says, all right, let's do it. So I coordinated a bunch of arrangers in L.A. to write uh, according to, you know, I picked different charts for different arrangers according to wrote a few myself and then uh and that was quite a production we we went in to a rehearsal studio and hired an engineer to record the rehearsal so that he could hear it for the first time mm-hmm. but not only to hear it to learn the charts because he never he doesn't read so and then we had a deadline because because they set up a tour for the big man and we sent him this, uh, I sent him this cassette tape with all the tunes. And uh, there's a documentary on the making of the Phil Collins Big Man. It's hilarious. You know, he's trying to learn how to play with brushes. He's trying to, you know, remember all the hits and breaks. And um, and it turned out fine. Yeah. The first tour, uh, he played a little too harsh on the first tour, but by the time we did the second tour, uh, well, the first tour was in, when was it, 96. And then the second tour was in 98. Mm-hmm. And by 98, he really, he got his stuff together, his subtleties. I think if we did another tour, he'd be like a really world-class big band player. Yeah, that's awesome. But he was having fun and, mm-hmm. uh, and we had fun. We did a CD on the second tour called A Hot Night in Paris, I believe. Something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and that went off well. And after that, we also did a, what was it? We did a, we did a world tour in 1997. <clears throat> and then 98, we did the big man tour. But in 1997, um, a French artist uh, who was a French legend, by the name of Johnny Halliday, mm-hmm. um, the biggest pop star that um, France has ever known. So Johnny Halliday, um, he started out uh, as a teenager. I think he was 16 years old mm-hmm. and became and hit. He was Elvis tunes in French and stuff like that. So he's accredited 
for bringing rock and roll to France. Mm -hmm. And this guy was a really good looking kid. He looked like James Dean. He had the look and everything. And um, so the years went by, he lived the perfect life uh, for for, uh, journalists to follow. Uh, He was a bad boy. He was into all kinds of no good. He 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 joined motorcycle gangs. I think he almost died twice in motorcycle accidents, and he dated very uh, prominent models and actresses. and And uh, I think he had one attempted suicide from a broken heart and all that stuff. So you know he he had a fan base like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. And meanwhile, every record he did became a huge hit, and uh, and every composer in France were writing songs for him. So by the time we joined him, none of us knew who he was Mm -hmm. at all. You know, he was just this, he looked like this old guy, you know, who's been, we we didn't know the immensity of this guy. Yeah. Until, and we rehearsed in LA and he showed up sometimes, sometimes he didn't. Uh, Really nice guy, low key. And then we went to France to do our first performance. And the first performance was at the at the newly built uh, Stade de France that was built for the World Cup in 1998, I guess. And uh, they were trying to get him to be the first rock act to play in there, but Elton John beat him by a few months. But a huge stadium. And uh, we played uh, three, four sold out performances there. Uh, I think there were like over 90,000 people at each show. And it was a huge stage, the biggest stage I'd ever seen with a runway out to the middle of the stadium. And uh, and he'd have, you know, like what do they call those trap doors and stuff that come up. And his big appearance was was really spectacular. You know, you see a video of him coming in an ele- uh, with a helicopter and climbing down the ladder and getting on the roof of the Stade de France. And all this is on video. They, they had a stunt man doing all this stuff uh, it live right. uh, it, in, in real time. And then all of a sudden, this explosion on top of the roof, and Johnny appears in the middle of the, sta- uh, the stadium, you know, in a trapdoor. And uh, huge. And, and also, at one point of the show, he, he uh, his Harley comes up, and he drives it. He rides it up to the stage, up a ramp. So that's just how big the, the stage was. Right. And uh, the Vine Street Horns, uh, that's when we, I think, uh, when I felt really accomplished the horn section, because we never rehearsed the entire show in its entirety. And we never played on that stage. And the choreographer, uh, he said to me, he said, you guys do what you do. Whatever we saw you do with Phil Collins, we want to see you do it here. So, you know, we had uh, we had wireless microphones, wireless monitors. So I remember we choreographed our positions on stage. Every song was different. Sometimes we'd flank Johnny right, you know, close by him. Sometimes we were spread out. And, you know, so we just, uh, we took notes and Dan was the, the 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 supervisor. He took notes on every single song, where we're going to start, where we're going to finish, how we're going to walk around. But the idea was 
to be mobile. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things about the Vine Street Horns that I always felt, tell me if I'm going off oh, track. Oh, no, you, you, hey, this is all good stuff, man. I'm loving it. <laughs> I came up, I got to dive into the early days a little bit, but I, I, I came up um, uh, playing in funk bands and rock bands mm-hmm. and did a lot of Vegas, uh, unlike most of the eminent trumpet players in town. I didn't go to college. I went right out of high school, started playing show bands. And I, I found that I really enjoyed dancing around and playing. I, I really enjoyed the entertainment factor right. of, of, uh, of playing. I also discovered that uh, an animated horn section seems to reach audience a little bit better uh, than four guys just sitting in the standing in the background not doing anything and i always say you know you got to be bigger than life when you perform Mm -hmm. people don't want to spend a lot of money on a ticket to see four horn players picking their nose in the (laughs) the back of the stage you know but so so that um that idea of a horn section stayed with me i played mostly horn sections stuff pop and 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 ethnic music throughout my career and because i really had fun playing the trumpet i didn't have any kind of um, i didn't hold back uh, on stage i wanted to show that that i was having fun and i liked being around other players going in on the fun mm-hmm. um so and and one of my um ideas or visions of the mine street horns was to bring really i want to use the word spectacular but uh bring horn parts that make a difference in the song uh create horn parts and play them in such a way that the artist may not ever want to hear that song again without horns, mm-hmm. or, or if they already had horns, play it in such a way that the artist will say, it never sounded like that before. And that, that comes with personalizing parts. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I like to do that because uh, I'm a soloist at heart. So when I see written I try to interpret those written notes as if I was playing it as a solo. Mm-hmm. So I try to get the horn section to do that. And I find that 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 makes a difference in a band when when they hear the horn parts being played a different way or just hear new horn parts that add so much to the song that it excites them. And uh, that's a, so making a difference in the music that I play has always been a front. And that was what the Vine Street Horns was about, you know, getting three guys with me that were like-minded. I remember, you know, even on sessions where I didn't write the chart and Diaz and and the guys around me would get really excited. Yeah, 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 let's do that, let's do that. And uh, the willingness to do that excited me too. You know, you don't, you don't, you're not always, in a in a situation where the guys in the horn section want to do that 
Um, so anyway, so I've been a horn section guy all my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like working with certain guys because they don't inhibit inhibit me. Mm-hmm. And um, geez, simple things that you know, there's a lot of a lot of the feel of music is not written, you know. So I always right. find uh, com- I f- I'm compelled to because, like I said, I, I'm solo minded. You know, you you get a line, you know, that isn't written in there, but it calls for it, you yeah. know. Yeah. Or the, 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 the oh, you know, a real quick fall at the end of a phrase. It's not written there, but you, you tell the guys, uh, let's do this. And and they go yeah yeah they're anxious to do this, and and then uh, then you, I tell the producer we're gonna try something tell me if you like it, and that's an important moment because if you have an idea and you have four guys are gonna do it with you, then you sell the idea, mm-hmm. and the producer goes nuts he didn't think about putting a fall or a bend or something like that or even a run up to a note you know didn't think about it. But it only works if you got four guys that are willing to do it, right? Hundred percent, because it's called selling it, yeah. selling the idea. And uh, I've been around guys that uh, you know I, I might come up with a lick in between a lick, and, uh, and they'll say, "No, are you kidding? No." And then that killed my groove, you know. Yeah. And if there's, if there's one guy that feels that way, well, we're not going to sell it, you know. Yeah. So that's that's important for execution. Uh, uh, that's important uh, to the whole idea of horn sections. So with the Vine Street horns, uh, the fun factor was really big. Yeah. You know, the idea is to play something that's that's really difficult because mm-hmm. I, I wrote a lot of difficult stuff only to keep ourselves on on, on our toes. Because if you do a tour for a year playing the same music but you come up with challenging stuff, it doesn't get boring. Yeah. You know? And you try to raise the bar constantly, you know, and uh, if it's not, if it's not, this is nice. It's just, just perfecting the personality in the first or, you know, and they say, nah, it didn't quite come off tonight. Tomorrow we're going to, you know, and everybody's into it. Yeah. And, and so, okay, so now we're playing some really hard shit. Can I say shit? Oh, you can say shit as much as you want. Your, your Amish friends won't my, my Amish friends don't don't mind. They're they're the reformed Amish. So, well, well I could call it manure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so so now we're having fun executing this stuff. So now we start emoting fun on stage. And uh, one thing Phil Collins told me early on, uh, he said, do as much as you want on stage. Uh, he doesn't mind. He's because he, he had, he was always putting himself down, but he always said he felt insecure trying to entertain an audience by himself. So he encouraged uh, at least Vine Street Horns to do what we wanted. He didn't mind people in the audience pointing at the horn section. He didn't feel it was a distraction. As a matter of fact, he felt like some of the pressure was off him because he didn't have to entertain. So we had a ball. And again, with us, you know, we'd start a tour and then little by little, we'd add shtick to it. And 
And before you know it, we had a whole Broadway choreographed, you know, a show of Phyllis Sticks. But we also knew that that we we there was an entertainment factor there. Mm-hmm. We had to uh, keep the audience engaged, and the only way to keep the audience engaged, in my mind, is for you yourself to be engaged. Right. You know, if the band is cooking, you know, you gotta you gotta feel it sincerely, mm-hmm. and when you do, then you could clown around and do whatever it is you do. Uh, and you touch your audience. You connect with the audience. I think that's really important. Uh, maybe that has something to do with with uh, my longevity, bringing horn sections to different artists and different shows, because they knew, because they had seen us before, they were going to bring something to the show. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And that's really important. I never felt and still don't feel like horn parts should be incidental mm-hmm. they should make a statement they should have some impact uh i've done tours where where all we did was play pads and yeah. and uh, i'll tell you you know i'm hearing stuff we could play we could add and little by little i start adding let's do this look in here let's do this look in there and uh because pads Anybody can do pads. You got a B3 organ. You got synthesizers. Yeah. You got micro. Well, all doing pads. You know, I I like horn parts to add movement. Yeah, exactly. Emphasize uh, uh, rhythms and 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 things like that. But mostly to add melodic, uh, you know, color yeah. into into music. And 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 if, I think if you do it effectively. Uh, it becomes part of the tune, and, and people can't imagine that tune without horns again. Um, so, so that's part of it. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, there's I, there's a there's a lot of great stuff um, that that you brought up, and I think one like for me, one of the keys is that you know the, the horn section, regardless of whether you're uh, you're the primary thought or the afterthought, um, you know, it's to add to the performance. And as and on on the stages, and you know, when I went, was originally talked about, you know, how you dealt with being on the big stage, it's a completely different. In a way, it's a different thing being on that level of a stage as opposed to being in a bar. But I guess the truth is that it really doesn't matter. It's just that when you're when you're on a stage in front of you know a hundred thousand people, you have to kind of ramp up what you're doing to be even larger than life a little bit. Just because I mean, just like what they they tell uh, actors or like public speakers, it's like you know you want to speak with the nature that you're talking to one person, but you have to project your personality to a larger degree to reach the person in the back of the room. When the back of the room's fifty yards away, you know there's one thing. When it's you know 50,000 feet away, then, it, then it's a different thing. But you're, the, the one thing about Vine Street that I really loved was uh, how you guys are, I mean, you are part, you're a part of the complete show. The mu- you know, the, the, obviously the horn parts uh, complement everything that goes on. Uh, and, you know, it just, it, it, it would be like, you know, having a, having a pizza without any oregano on it. You know, you can't do that. Um, but also visually, you guys are visually interesting to watch. So as a musician, I can sit there and go, damn, those guys can play their asses off. 
But then I can also look and go, man, they're having fun. They're engaged. They're part of the process. You know, they're, they're just, they're fun to listen to. They're fun to watch. And not every section can pull that off. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, it depends on the individual. Like I say, I've always handpicked the guys that I uh, that I play with, that I bring to a show. Um, you know, a lot of us are introverts. Mm-hmm. You know, we play our horn and, and that's it. But I've never been that way. I've been kind of <laughs> nutty <laughs> and very expressive. Yeah. And like, even if I play in a small club, with a salsa band or something i'm just dancing along because i'm actually having fun yeah and and like people that have that kind of fun too mm-hmm. you know and uh boy one of my biggest influences i'll never forget this when i when i was a kid uh, i go to the movies i don't want to date myself but uh, you know back whatever year that was you go to the movies and they show short clips of things music clips mm-hmm. and and one of the ones that they played uh often was louis prima mm-hmm. uh, old black magic and uh gigolo you know they, they just had a lot of song and i loved that energy the, i mean it looked like louis prima was you know too much caffeine or something but he sure was fun to watch and you know and and i said oh I like that, mm-hmm. and I, and I don't think I consciously said that I wanted to do that, but it became part of my thing mm-hmm. to um, to have that much fun on stage, whether it was a small stage or a big stage. You know, I like the idea, like when I tour and and I meet fans and stuff, or even in a club. I've ha- I've had people say they never paid attention to horn players before. But now it's like different, you know, the horn section or my playing or whatever, open the door for them to, there's so much more to music. And then because of that, they listen to the bass, they listen to the, you know, before they were just listening to the singer. Right. right. <laughs> so, we, you know, and even in the, our latest tour, um, people have said that we'd never paid attention to horns before. And, and we were, they were just blown away by what we were doing. And in layman's terms, uh, they they couldn't describe what we were doing, but they would say, we always knew something was about to happen when we see you guys get on stage, you know? And yeah. that's that feels good uh, because that, that's the purpose, to go out there and create an impact, you yeah. know, not just uh, be sidelining. Um, I, I think maybe that has something to do with my... Um, my background is, uh, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know if this is appropriate, but, you know, I, I grew up uh, at a time, uh, you know, right after the Korean War and right after World War II, and Asians were very much dismissed. For a, lot, a large part of my time, uh, my life, I felt like Asians, I was invisible. Mm-hmm. I wasn't counting in 
uh, I wasn't included when people talked about stuff. Um, we were just invisible. And of course, it's different now, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in my son's uh, time in school, everybody, oh, Asians are smart and all this stuff, you know, but not not so much. You know, don't forget, like during World War Two, uh, when when there are uh, military intelligence from that were based in China, sent letters to um, Washington talking about the Japanese zero because up up to that point, they had never seen a fighter plane maneuver and do the things the Japanese Zero did. Mm-hmm. And they, they wrote full reports and sent it to Washington. And the resp- that's impossible. Those people are too stupid to be able to to create such a machine. And then, of course, Pearl Harbor came right. and all that. And uh, you know, I don't want to get into it, but Asians weren't thought of as, um, as uh, you know, Asians were dismissed a mm-hmm. lot of times. I, what I, the feeling I got growing up was I was not good enough, mm-hmm. not good enough. And I remember when I was in the sixth grade, which would make me eleven, I got into a fight in the in the schoolyard, and the boy's vice principal called me into his office the next morning, and he gave me this lecture, and he he ended it with. Because you're Asian, you must learn to be quiet and obedient. And that, that stayed with me. Wow. And, and I wonder sometimes if that had anything to do with me being so outrageous on stage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't want to be stereotypically quiet and obedient right. on stage. And and I tell you that, that I've lost gigs because of it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I want to contribute too much. I want to act out what I'm playing too much. I I, uh, I I don't fit in all the time in certain situations because uh, I can't help myself, you know. <laughs> I gotta I gotta speak up, you know, I gotta I gotta do something. So it it, it it it's hurt me a little bit, uh, but not enough to say I regret it because that led me to other things because that's what certain people wanted. Yeah. Well um, and, and you know you've got to be true to yourself. You know, and, and if that's if that's who you are, man, that's who you got to be. And that's, a, that's yeah, I, exactly right. Yeah, I, I think sometimes that's where people, um, you know, when, when you try to fit in in order to that, not, not saying that, that you have to, just, you know, be a, you know, com, a complete, you know, narcissistic ass or anything. Uh, but when when people try to uh, alter their personality uh, just to get the gig then mm-hmm. you know, you end up not being happy because you're not doing you're not being you you're not doing you and if you're not mm-hmm. happy you're not doing your best job so you know, you're not you're not serving that person either way so you know it's it's often better just to say hey look this this doesn't fit me so you know i agree with you 100% there's a lot of gigs i stayed away from you know because i knew that that i'm not mentally capable of doing it or spiritually, you know, I don't understand how some people, like I have friends that, you know, did, I have a friend that did 17 years playing cats on Broadway, you know, yeah. I've done, I've done short run musicals, 10 day runs, mm-hmm. and I'm going crazy by the end of the 10 days, you know, uh, so I knew to stay away from that, you know, I knew to stay away from lots of different kinds of gigs. 
And one thing I, I tell people, you know, along the lines of what you just said, this uh, staying true to yourself, um, be yourself. Play the way you want to play. Um, you don't have to always fit in because someone is going to like the way you play. You know, someone's going to like the way you are. You don't have to please everybody and you're not going to please everybody. You know, I mean, you could go into a certain uh, specialized group of people and yeah, you'll fit in there, but you might not fit in doing what I do, you know? And, and so uh, you don't, you don't have to try to try to fit in everywhere. Uh, Cause you, you have to first recognize who you are and what your forte is as a musician and then market that. And I don't mean like you go out and market it like a, like a pro well, yeah, it's like a product, but just make sure that it's heard and the people that are going to dig that are going to create a, a career for you mm -hmm. as it did with me, you know, um, I don't, I won't say everybody likes the way I play, but the important people in my career certainly did. Yeah. And uh, that's all it counted because I could be myself when I'm doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and uh, I have so many thoughts while I'm talking that um, I'm not sure I'm speaking in complete sentences. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You, you are, my friend, you are. And, and it makes perfect sense. And, you know, this is. I mean, this is kind of the the gist of what I try to get across in each of these episodes is, you know, giving people a space to just express themselves. Because, you know, I'm sure you've been interviewed tons of times, uh, you know, and it's usually the, the, the same questions, you know, and, wow. you know, and, and that's OK, you know, but um, I, I want to give people a chance to say the stuff and answer the kind of questions that that they always wish they were asked. You know, yeah. so, uh, yeah, I just I love what you're saying. And, and it makes completely sense because, you know, for me, um, you know, I'm nowhere at the at the level of, you know, guys like you and Dan and, and you know, people like that. But um, I've made my bread and butter for for most of my playing career has been playing in pop based bands, you know, pop, you know, cover bands, wedding bands, things like that. Uh, so mm -hmm. I'm playing the kind of stuff that you're writing. So thanks a lot for some of that stuff man I really wow, really appreciate that <laughs> but but it's that thing of you know I've always had that understanding that as a member of the horn section the horn section needs to be an integral part of the band you're not just you're just not a side man you're part of the show and executing and you know giving it giving it physically musically visually the best I can do those are the gigs if I walk away from a gig feeling like you know I was stuck in a corner and, and couldn't be myself, then I don't want to do that gig anymore. Man, I, people say, what's it like to play the big concerts, you know, with Phil, with Johnny Howard, with any, and the only way I could describe it is when you finish the last note and you take your bows and everything and you walk off the stage, I think it feels like someone who just won, um, what do they call that when you win s several tennis championships? Uh, the Grand you know, Slam? Yes. Just won a Grand Slam. When you see those tennis players win and they throw themselves on the ground 
in gratitude and, and self-gratitude, you know, for what they had just accomplished. And that's what it feels like, except you don't throw yourself on the ground. You walk off the stage nonchalantly, but you're covered in sweat and you're so, it, 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 it's, uh, you can't describe it to someone unless they went through it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a lovely feeling um, to do that because you're playing your heart out mm-hmm. all the time, a hundred percent. You're not holding back for a session tomorrow morning or even a rehearsal band tomorrow morning, you're playing full on with, and and literally with all of your heart. Mm -hmm. So the satisfaction level after a show, right after, as you're walking off the stage, like, wow, I just did this. It's, it's so good. And, uh, but you know, sometimes you walk off kind of a little down on yourself because you didn't execute everything quite as good as your best night. And, Mm -hmm. uh, so, but the, you know, that's part, that's part of it. Um, yeah, it's part of the game, man. You, you, you watch a football or something like that, basketball, you know, every, oh, every player's got a, got an off game, but. Oh, but you know, what gets me is like watching baseball, you know, when, when the guy hits the winning run, everybody gets around and they're jumping up and down like little girls. It's, mm-hmm. it's just, it cracks me up every time I see that, but that's the feeling. You're just so excited. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Well, and that, that, that and, and what you're saying here, like you, that is our natural reaction to excitement. Um, yeah. So, w- like when you get excited, uh, the body naturally wants to move. Your energy's coming up. The, the 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 mental energy, the emotional energy, the physical energy, everything is up. And so that's why you know if somebody starts talking with a high pitched voice, they're either exceptionally happy or they're getting really really pissed. You know, and so it, that's it, that's energy going upwards. And it makes our body want to move. And when you become very still and down, then that's, you know, that's a downward feeling. So, you know, that, that high energy, you know, when you're out there on the stage and you're just, you're, you're giving it everything you got uh, and you're, you're, you're feeding because you get that feedback loop between yourself, the band, then the audience. And when you've got that many people in this, this kind of feedback loop of energy, man, you know, you just, you can't help but come away feeling almost like you're, you're being lifted by a tide. Well, you know, I'm glad you said that because that is part of engagement. When you're playing with world-class musicians, the rhythm section, everybody's pumping. How could you not want to move you know, I mean, the Vine Street Horn, none of us are professional dancers or anything. We, that's within our capabilities, but it's act, you know, that, that adds some movement. And sometimes we know it's silly, but we do it with so much commitment that people get entertained. We're not trying to be dancers. We're just moving. And then we add little things on accents where we pick up our horn, bring it down and stuff like that. It really adds to the visual impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I have this conversation often with uh, musicians and, you know, they, they don't think that showmanship or entertainment has any place in the art of music. And I bring up to them that live performance is the visual art. It's a visual art. It's mm-hmm. not just... You know, I I really think that the death of uh, classical music and and jazz is that music got so introverted that they lost the live performance uh, aspect of it. The visual, 
Uh, I've had talks about this with Quincy Jones and people like that, that they talked about the big band days where the horn players are doing the choreography. Mm-hmm. And they said, man, like uh, if you went to see Louis Armstrong or, or Dizzy Gillespie, people were jumping off the rafters that there was, it was so entertaining. Yeah. And, and I have kind of a theory, I may be wrong, but the music got really introverted. Uh, intro- What's the right Introverted. Word? Yeah. Music got internalized mm-hmm. uh, with the introduction of certain drugs and, and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think they lost the mass appeal to the audience. You know, as people like, art is art. You go hear a great uh, musician and uh, it shouldn't matter what they're doing, but Miles Davis knew. You know, he was up there and he did stuff that people want. They went to see him for, you know, turning his back on the audience and playing down and doing and and his his wardrobe. Mm -hmm. You know, don't forget that. I mean, and he he was packing, you know, arenas. Yeah. But I'm not, you know, the art of of performing jazz is still astounds me. Mm -hmm. But I think some of that stuff that dizzy gillespie had and those guys you know were they're just showing how happy they are yeah yeah um uh that that i think again i'm not speaking in complete sentences yeah. no but, but, you know, but bringing you... bringing uh gustavo dudamel for instance animating that orchestra to go ahead and dig in and show your digging and boy that adds to the to the visual. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I was thinking. You know, it's like, you know, we talk about the classical thing, um, you know, cause I've had this discussion with, with lots of different musicians over the years as well. Uh, if you think about the classical thing, uh, who is the leader of the orchestra? Well, the conductor, you know, if you've ever taken a conducting class, you're taught to do your patterns and it's just very, very, you know, clean and simple and that's it like a metronome, but you never see a world-class conductor who just stands there, you yeah. know, it's you know their hair is flying all over the place. Their their passion. The, the orchestra becomes his instrument. Yeah, I mean they they're digging in, and uh, you know if if you're too cool for the room, you're you're playing your shit really. You're your shit. You're yeah, really your shit. really great and all yeah. that. But if you have a conductor that allows you to emote, mm-hmm. oh man, that that becomes a whole other thing. You know. Yeah. Uh, and and like I said, I think I may be wrong, but there, there's certain orchestral things that are that are getting more popular. Holy mackerel! You got these these virtuoso pianists coming out there in miniskirts and and playing their butt off. You know, even not related, but when a concert pianist does this, they're not doing it for show. They're doing it because they feel it. Yeah. You know, and that adds to to whatever the audience is like. Adds to the dynamic of the music when they see that, and then you add a mini skirt to it, and you know, five inch heels. It's like, whoa, I'm coming to this concert again. Uh, and uh, you know, I don't think any of those people do it arbitrarily because they know it's going to draw. Mm-hmm. These people are sincerely stylish, yeah, and they come to the gig like that, you know, and. Um, you know, uh, same thing with with musicians uh, that are playing the big concerts. Like I said, they, you got to be bigger than life. You know, when Phil Collins, I mean, some of the front row tickets were selling for eight thousand yeah. dollars. 
You know, you got to be bigger than life. You got to accept it. And the only way to do that is to have confidence in what you're doing. Yeah. If you're not sure what you're doing or that what you're bringing to the party is not worth it, then you kind of stay in there. But when you, when you know that what you're doing has impact, it only gives you more incentive to pour your heart out in all aspects of your performance, including mm-hmm. the movement. Yeah. And, uh, and all that gets validated. I've, I've played with guys that were kind of shy and timid at first, but once they allow themselves to have a good time at it, yeah, who's going to stop them? And it doesn't matter if you look silly. We all look silly, really, but we're having fun. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that's the point of it. I mean, nobody's going to hear to see four professional dancers, you know. Mm-hmm. We're, just, we're just having a great time. Yeah. Well, you're having a party, man, you know. And, and so that's, that's one of the things that uh, – you know, you started in the middle of my career, but this is like takes root in the beginning of my career. Mm-hmm. As um, I had a discussion with a uh, a contemporary, a temp- contemporary, ah, a guy who's my age, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, about the music business, a trumpet player, and uh, we were discussing the differences in the level of did as opposed to him. And, and he said something that I, I've been kind of using this idea more when I speak to uh, students and stuff. He said that he spent all his career trying to fit in, and he noticed that I was trying to stand out. So I think, and I didn't do it because of ego. It's, I did it because this is the way I play, you know. And so I tell, I tell people the era of the professional second and third trumpet player is gone. The big bands are sort of gone. I mean, you could be a good second, third, fourth trumpet player, but in in reality, in today's world, they're all lead players. Mm-hmm. You know, they just learn how to be good side men. But uh, at a certain point, in order to build some sort of career, you have to turn heads when given the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that that's that could be what saves you, uh, or creates a career for you. It's not always about blending in, you know. Yeah, you know, you're supposed to blend sound and and personality and all this kind of stuff. But there, when when the time calls for you to stand out, do it. Don't be shy about it. And the only way you could do it is to have confidence in what you have to offer. You have to know what it is that you do. Like you said, being true to yourself. You have to know yourself in order to do it successfully. And uh, gosh, I've I've fell flat on my face many times when I had the opportunity, but it it didn't matter. I I I always knew that uh, it wasn't going to be the end of the world for me. I've had a lot of uh, really tough times. Uh, I had chop problems uh, that was humiliating. And uh, I learned that the trumpet doesn't define me. I had to distance myself from the trumpet, me as a person first. And I happened to play trumpet, you know, and I recovered from my problems. Uh, I've been through some emotional problems. Uh, uh, My wife got sick. I was married for 29 years and my wife uh, got cancer. She was sick for two years and then she passed away. And that was the darkest time of my life. Mm 
Yeah. I lost all motivation to practice. Uh, I was just warming up a little bit to go to the gig and that's it. And, and um, it took me, it took me a while to get back on track, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, the last Phil Collins tour actually was a lifesaver because it's exactly what I needed to come to terms with my loss and, mm -hmm. and get back into playing and focusing on, uh, on playing well. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so, you know, you go through ups and downs, but I think um, your survival skills have to, have to come into play um, and know that you're going to recover from anything, even a terrible concert. You know, one of the biggest fears people have is messing up on a concert or recital or whatever. And once they learn that it's not the end of the world, they, they could do it with more confidence and they lose that fear because what's the worst that can happen? You know, maybe you'll lose a job or something like that. But I was, I've always had this, um, sour grapes attitude about things I lose, you know, uh, you know, the story about the Fox trying to leaping up and down, trying to grab a grape from a vine that was over his head. And he finally gave up. And as he walked away, he said, sour, the, the grapes are probably sour. Uh, okay. so, sour grapes for everything that I don't get, you know, it's my way of justifying. It wasn't for me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you get rejection or you break up with your sweetheart or something and just stop dwelling on it, you know, just say sour grapes. She wasn't for me. The job, it wasn't for me, you know, because if it was, you wouldn't have lost it. Yeah. And and it's sour grapes, because if you lost the job, you probably wouldn't have been happy with it, you know, or you put too much weight on it or or you. uh you're allowing that job to validate you or to define you too much, you know? Yeah. Well that, and that's powerful, man. I mean, that, that attitude is so, so powerful. And I, in a to, to degree, I mean, I, I have to say sometimes it's the, uh, with, and I'm not, I'm not saying this is an insult, uh, with age comes wisdom and you know, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a spring chicken either. So, uh, but as I look back to, you know, like my 20 year old self, uh, I, I did some stupid shit and it was mostly because I didn't understand the ramifications. And because you weren't, you weren't Amish yet. Yeah. I went Amish yet. I, I, that's right. So uh, when I, when I can look back now and go, you know, Hey, I was sweating all of this stuff that in the grand scheme of things really didn't mean anything. So, uh, and you know, uh, I've, gone you know I have like you you know I definitely have my my share of uh, of hardships and and everything that that's come before this has just helped me to be a better version of who I am today thanks for hanging with us today this podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend we want to see the hang grow for show Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of olive oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signor. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. 
Graphic design by Ann Kirby of the Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Gurus Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group. 